Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald, my chance to talk with creative gamers and game creators. Henry Audubon, I'm in your current home city of Philly post PAX Unplugged 2022. Welcome to the show. Yeah, we're on the other side of the whirlwind there for that weekend, but uh, it was a pleasure and, you know, Philly's welcome to have you. Yeah. Yeah. So as I understand it, you're not native to Philly. This is like a, a new thing for you to have moved here. I moved here about three and a half years ago before kind of the world descended into chaos. Where are you Um, originally from? Well, I was born in Ohio, but moved pretty early on to Vermont. Mm -hmm. So I really grew up in Burlington, Vermont, went to public school there and uh, then left Vermont to go off to college. And then after that, lived around the country in various places, but kind of returned to Philly actually partially due to PAX Unplugged. I was heading to the first one and stayed in an Airbnb in Chinatown and really liked the vibe of the city. And then when it came time to pick a new spot to live, it just Philly was on my radar. And it's great to have a home convention, you know, yeah, makes things easier to be able to stay in your own bed and walk home and have all those comforts. So yeah, well, it has a good design scene here, too. And, you know, like Greg Loring Albright is always proselytizing Philly, right? You know, he's trying to get everyone to move here, even though he's not currently living in the city. It's a shame. But, you know, it's always in his heart. So is that part of, you know, the the development and inspiration for getting into parks? Because that's where I first encountered you was parks as a design and then meeting you at PAX Unplugged previously in yesteryears. And... Um, you know, like you've been all over the the United States. Was that like a passion project for you? Well, I was living in Nashville, Tennessee, when the Parks Project came up. And really, that all started because 59 Parks Print Series, the poster collection of the national parks, wanted to collaborate with Keymaster Games. They were big fans of Campy Creatures. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I happened to be developing a different project with Keymaster at that time, and they kind of offered it to me to give it a shot to design this game about hiking through the national parks. So for me, the project was a lot about channeling what I love about hiking. I'm a person, I don't drive at all. I love to walk, uh, whether through the city or through nature. I love to just be on foot, and it's a just a great way to keep my mind active is just thinking while I'm on the go. And so I tried to channel a love for walking into the game Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. just memories from the natural beauty of Vermont certainly tried to, you know, channel some of that energy as well. But, um, ultimately the parks project was, yeah, it it came about through Keymaster and 59 parks. I was super fortunate to be asked to take a shot at designing it. And it was really only through the success of the parks Kickstarter and then the kind of subsequent success of the game that I was able to to move from Nashville to come up to Philly. So yeah, Parks kind of marked a transition to Philly for me. Parks is, to me, it's like the, the perfect blend of ease and tension, right? You know, like as you move forward, you're always facing consequences no matter what space that you're going to. And I know it's not the first linear worker placement, but was that the idea from the very beginning? Well, when they first asked me to take a crack at designing the game, uh, they actually wanted a pure card game at first. It was going to be a tuck box with no additional components. And so for a while when I was working on Parks, it was just a matter of how to make an interesting card game that really highlighted the art and featured it in the, in the right way. And so for quite a while, I was working on card game versions of Parks, but then eventually they decided to just make a traditional playing card deck using the Parks art for face cards. Mm -hmm. And then so they returned to me and said, hey, we actually want to expand the scope of this strategy game project and make a fully fledged Parks board game. And so when when the project pivoted to be more of a uh, proper board game, I started experimenting with things and pretty quickly landed on the, the the kind of modular trail and paused at a site for a moment, taking in the scenery. Other times they're rushing ahead. And there was something about it that just spoke to the the start and stop pace of, of hiking. Was there at any point, any discussion of it being too complex? I mean, I, I don't find it to be a particularly complex game, but partnering with, you know, a, a non-board game company who wants something to, to represent uh, this experience, it is a robust game. I, I think that that's a, a fair term to say. And then, of course, Trails came along later. 
was there ever any sort of dynamic of like, is this too complex for a, a casual audience where this may be their first board game? There were a lot of ideas for parks that were left aside or left, you know, left on the cutting room floor, so to speak, uh, during the development process of the game. We were always mindful of like wanting to make sure that it's accessible. It's the kind of game that you can play with your family members, introduce new people to modern hobby games. We wanted it to be a something that people could feel good about giving as a gift to people who maybe aren't uh, enthusiast hobby gamers. So yeah, that was on our mind um, throughout. And what we've tried to do is make it so that the expansions to parks, like take it up a notch for people who are really into um, hobby gaming and want a a little bit of a a deeper experience. Like the Nightfall expansion adds additional uh, camping sites on the trail and just a lot of texture from that. And then we have, as you mentioned, trails as a more like introductory product where if people just want to get their, their feet wet and dabble in, in strategy games, like you can start with trails and then see how you go with that and step up to parks. And so that's kind of the, the transition that we hope that players can go on of trails to parks to, to nightfall and beyond. Well, this convention that we just did is a special convention to you, or at least from the outsider perspective. Right. I can't speak for exactly how you feel, but to me... This is a whole different ball game than from when I first met you maybe four or so years ago. Because at that time, you had Parks and, you know, it was a respected game. You had a couple other uh, games in development at the time. But now you have several games that have been signed that are on the BGG hotness that people are really excited about. You had an announcement. It's called uh, Defenders of the Wild. Defenders of the Wild. Okay, yeah. so you had Defenders of the Wild, um, and that was uh, uh, with Out of Order games, right? With That's TL. right. Yep, okay. exactly. Yeah, so how did you end up connecting with TL on this? Well, uh, Tim, as I know him, he, uh, is a friend of mine who also lives in Philly. And so he's part of the local design scene. And of course, he's friends with with Greg Loring Albright, who you mentioned earlier. Yep, the uh, block the, by block crew. Exactly, the block by block team. And so Tim is just one of these people who I'm fortunate to get to to kind of kick it with and play games and talk game design. And yeah, he and I have become good friends. And I've kind of been aware of his uh, this IP and world that he's been building in the background of Defenders of the Wild. And mm-hmm. uh, eventually, Tim just... Uh, raised the question to me one time when we were having coffee of just would I be down to come on as a co-designer and right. and help him uh, flesh out his game and bring it across the finish line and I was like totally man let's let's do it and especially um, when I started seeing some of the artwork that he was doing for it I got you know really excited he's working with uh, Meg Lemure I believe her name is and right. she's just a cool illustrator as well and they're kind of teaming up to do a lot of world building and get the the art style down so. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been a, a really inspiring project. And the reception that we've got to the announcement has been incredibly encouraging and has exceeded our expectations. We right, thought it right, was right. a cool, you know, it's like we're working on it and we think it's a cool game, but you never know with these things. Like are other people going to respond to it well? Will it resonate with the with the audiences out there? And so far, Defenders has been getting an awesome reception at PAX. Well, it has an aesthetic completely unlike any other uh, Woodland Force Critters uh, anthropomorphized presentation that I've seen in the past. You know, like we, we've had the Red Wall thing. Uh, of course, Root looms heavy in the hobby. But to see like early 20th century aesthetic and this revolutionary anti-colonialist uh, bent, or maybe not even colonialist, just a uh, revolutionaries fighting against these uh, looming oppressors. One of the things I thought was particularly interesting about the illustrations was seeing all the prosthetics uh, that uh, some of the woodland creatures had. Um, I know that you're not uh, the originator of the setting and you're also not the illustrator on the game, but is that prosthetic aspect to it you know the the taking on parts of the oppressor almost in a metaphorical or symbolic sense um do you think when co-designing this game about like deeper thematic connotations and you know like uh anti uh authoritarian connotations um revolutionary anti-colonialist connotations like 
you're you're getting into a different ball game when you're going over to uh, out of order games. Absolutely, I mean that's part of the the brand and the whole aesthetic over there is uh, mm-hmm. resistance and political popular uprisings right. and um, standing against um, invasion and kind of holding holding your ground. And so this is a game about um, animal heroes who are defending their habitats from mechanical invaders, and there are. You know, people can draw their own conclusions about the politics. I mean, I think that that's part of the beauty of games is that we give people a system and some some pieces to push around with some rules and and then emergent things happen and it tells its own story. And so it's not meant to be too uh, prescriptive in terms of this specific thing. But yeah, this is a game about um, about defending from invaders from from afar. And it's uh, has, you know, Obviously, some environmental themes to it, kind of anti-industrialism of these are kind of technological, mechanical forces coming coming in. And in terms of the prosthetics, I mean, we're trying to take this in a bit of a, a darker direction than a mm-hmm. lot of the other anthropomorphic yeah, animal yeah. games that are out there. And we're trying to show that these these people are... Um, they've been affected by by war, by hardship, mm-hmm. and that uh, there's a certain... Yeah, we're, we're trying to get a little gritty with the, with the tone of all this. And part of the game is choosing, each player will be asked to choose one of the four factions to to represent during the course of a session of play. And each of these four factions has a very different approach to how they think the conflict with the machines should be handled. So for example, one of the factions, the sect, are very interested in repurposing the machine parts right. to augment bodies and almost taking it in a, a bit of like a cyberpunk uh, you know, but maybe earlier technologically more of a steampunk kind of direction of, yeah, using the machine parts to to augment themselves. Whereas other factions would prefer to take a more uh, wild and naturalistic approach, um, mm-hmm. like the Coven, for example. They're they're an order of of witches and uh, druids and people mm-hmm. who commune with the spirits of nature and maybe wouldn't be as wouldn't be early adopters of cybernetic arms and this kind of thing. But so there's there are differences of opinions amongst the factions and the defenders. And that's part of what we explore in the game is that even in, you know, these uh, popular uprising movements, there are still some internal misalignments of of perspective and just people seeing the world differently. And so we try to capture that in the game a bit. And that's part of the competitive nature of the game, right? Because it can be played cooperative where all of the asymmetric victory goals that the different factions are working towards, you have intersectionality. Like they, you're invested in helping the others because that's how you're cooperatively going to win. But when you play competitively, you only have to meet your own victory goal. You know, the rest of the the woodland factions be damned in the face of the the mechanical oppressor. Yeah, well, it's really about uh, what is the future of this region where this conflict is breaking out and each faction wants to bring about uh, its own future from this time of of turmoil you're basically zooming in on a on a flashpoint moment where the the future hangs in the balance and so uh, it's not a matter of everyone else be damned but it's a matter of whoever whatever faction prevails Mm -hmm. will see their their future come to pass and that's their you know the timeline that they want to live on so perhaps there's more um, you know, m- machines being used and more technological progress if the if the sect are able to prevail over over the coven, say. But yeah, you're right to point out that there's also a cooperative way of, of playing where all of the factions can sort of put aside their their differences. They still need to achieve their own victory conditions, but it's not mutually exclusive in the way that the competitive mode is. What did you bring to the table? Like, you know, TL, Tim had this uh, game that he was working on, this big passion project for him. He's been doing some of the illustration. He's partnered with another illustrator. He came up with this world, started fleshing out this design. But when you got in at whatever stage that you did, like, what do you feel like you, you most influenced in the game? Well, Tim has been working on this game uh, for years, uh-huh. from game design to world building to illustration. And so when I came onto the project, part of what my um, role was, was to kind of clarify what is our vision for this game moving forward of all of these versions and all of these just swirling possibilities, which is the right one for us to, to lock down and move forward on. So 
a lot of what I did was processing Tim's ideas mm-hmm. and bringing a few of, of my own, you know, just um, notions that came about just during the process of reflecting on what Tim had already done and just deciding like, hey, I think this is a really resonant direction. This is seeming extremely cool to me. Like, let's take things here. Right, right. Um, part of it also was just, there were a lot of open questions about the game when I came on board and you know, it wasn't solely through me, but it was through discussions that Tim and I had that we were able to clarify and find answers to some of these open questions. Like, for example, who are you playing when you play this game? For a while, we were wondering, like, are you uh, people who are defenders who live in the region? And maybe that these four factions, like the Sect and the Coven and others, are um, kind of third parties that are interacting in the world, but you're not representing them particularly. Um, there were a lot of different possibilities of how everything could, could be, you know, and that's one of the things you learn working on a bunch of games is that, um, when people play games in the end, it's like they're getting a box and everything is self-contained with the rules all resolved. But when you go through the journey of making a game, you're seeing that there are just hundreds, if not thousands of possible (laughs) roads you can head down. And it's just a matter sometimes of using, you know, whatever reasons you can come up with or whatever intuition you can muster to try to say like, this is of the many roads, this is the one. And so, yeah, there's still, I I will say like a a lot of uh, open questions in the design and Tim and I are still meeting regularly to just like work on the game and make sure it's as cool as possible for when it finally comes out to people. But yeah, I've just tried to offer my perspective on any, any, any and all questions that were open when I came onto the project. And uh, yeah, working with Tim has has been super fun. So we're going to keep going and try to make something really special for people. You have, a, as I said, a couple designs that are coming out with several different publishers. You know, you got uh, it's Cosmoctopus. Oh, yeah. Uh, then that had a successful Kickstarter. You have Flow upcoming. That's right. I, Flow is uh, kickstarting what spring of this coming year? We are pushing to get it all ready for a uh, spring kickstarter like likely late in the spring uh but yeah. uh that's our goal you know it's always tough with with game design and game development right. it's like there's there's so many moving parts to it all and there's art and there's graphic design and there's manufacturing and getting preview copies out right, and, then right, right. and then there's from my perspective like locking down all the final rules and just making sure that it's gone through the playtesting process to an appropriate amount and so uh that's our goal is to is to kickstart it early early next year but it's an, an interesting thing I, I haven't really thought about that because there are differences in how different companies approach kickstarter locking down the design in advance of the kickstarter and then there's some companies who will kickstart a game with like a very early build and acknowledge that part of what we're paying for what we're funding is the development and the the continuous design of this game i think most famously uh, that's probably like uh, Frosthaven, um, which went through tons of iteration um, and Gloomhaven as a predecessor. But I, I think Frosthaven itself um, evolved much more uh, from the original vision to the the final uh, version in that um, post Kickstarter cycle. And then uh, Oath had a very similar thing where they were very upfront about like, Here's kind of what we're going for. Here's very rough builds that we've play tested with people and we might have available on tabletop simulator or something. But this is going to be iterated on heavily. So, you know, we're kind of asking for your faith that we're going to deliver a product that you like, not just getting the product that we have currently right now. Um, do you have any thoughts on that process? It's interesting you bring that up because I just met Cole Worley for the first time over the weekend and got to chat with him a bit about ARCs. And I've really enjoyed reading his design journals on all of his games, but right. most, most recently on ARCs. And he was describing to me going through that process of having this very open-ended Kickstarter. And it makes sense for for Cole and for Leader Games. They've built up a lot of kind of trust with their audience, completely trusts them to make awesome games and deliver something eventually. And, and it's cool to just... Uh, fund it and encourage them in their open-ended creative journey right. toward making a game. I will say that for me, I tend to not have a lot of say as a freelance designer yeah, in terms yeah, of yeah. when when and how the crowdfunding happens. It's like really that's a that's a publishing decision and, and I try to be flexible and accommodating to what the publisher's vision for their own crowdfunding campaigns are. And a lot of it 
you know, can have to do with with uh, marketing stuff. Like, you know, I think that if you can get things ready and your prototype is looking fairly final, then anything that you ship out for, say, preview copies uh, for YouTubers like yourself or for other people, it that content that gets made is a lot more useful in the future uh, mm-hmm, once mm-hmm. the game is released, you know, if the prototype resembles the final product in some way. So I think people are um, mindful of, of that. But um, the folks at Fantasia, and by the way, uh, Fantasia Games, known for Endless Winter and more recently Unconscious Mind, which I'm a huge fan of. Unconscious Mind especially has really been inspiring me lately. But they are doing a new imprint company called Pika Games, which is for their family line. Right. And so Flow will be the first release under Pika Games. And That's no pressure, no pressure at all. None. To set the tone for an entire imprint for a company. But they they have faith in you, so there you go. I know. Well, it's a huge privilege to be able to work with them. I mean, Andrew Bosley's doing the artwork. It's, oh, it's, man. His, yeah, stu- yeah, his, of his stuff is as charming as ever. And I hope people will just fall in love with Flow. I've put a lot of my myself into it. And uh, yeah, I've been working hard. So hopefully people will really enjoy it. But uh, the team at Fantasia, you know, they are self described perfectionists about Kickstarter <laughs> campaigns and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. They want things to be just so heading into the campaign and they know how to do it. I mean, look at the success of their campaigns. They've been doing a great job. And so uh, I think with, with Flow, we're trying to just make sure that everything is all sorted out and the, the details are good to go and we're, we're ready to, to show it to the, to the crowds out there. The Alaskan in me, the Arctic boy in me has yeah. to ask, like, what's the genesis of Flow? You know, I look at that box art and, you know, I, I'm just captivated. Of course, Andrew Bosley is doing the artwork, so it's going to be captivating even if it was just a shoe. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, like, um, you know, you, you have like this mystical looking thing you got iceberg flows the name is flow with an e at the end you know it's a whole different ball game there uh it it looks like there's some sort of um indigenous or tribal influence uh at least in some of the aesthetic like talk to me about the genesis of this game well the fantasia team invited me to take a look at their google doc for their world to see if i might be interested in designing a a strategy game around what they were thinking about and when i first came on it was really that um there's a there's an arctic world Mm -hmm. of an iceberg sea and that there's this kind of shattered civilization there where the the towns have all like broken apart and things are adrift is this in the same world as Endless Winter? Is this part of like some thematic continuity? It's not. I think they just they love oh, they, uh, they love the Arctic theme. They do. They do. Okay. They so love, it's they like the winter. unofficial parallel universes of Endless Winter, Frosthaven, and Flow. There yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a the multiverse. It's a multiverse. Exactly. <laughs> it's a it's a prismatic reflection across uh we'll let across Isaac different Childress realities. Know soon, you know. Yeah. So Fantasia games, like they are trying to do more uh, historically inspired games for the Fantasia line. So like Endless Winter is trying to riff on like Paleo America. Yeah, yeah. And then Unconscious Mind is obviously a, a historical setting as well from the 20th century. And then so Pika Games, not only is it a family line, but it's also uh, more open-ended, fantastical, imaginative settings. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, so when I came on to the the project, there were a few concepts in place. It was a an Arctic um, adventure fantasy kind of thing, and there was a lot of inspirational imagery, some photography that was taken from the uh, you know above the Arctic Circle, and there were these sailboats against the icebergs with pink skies and rich like deep turquoise blues from the ice just under the water's surface and there was a lot of imagery to kind of get inspired. So, uh, you know, I came onto the project and then me and Yoma, who is one of the founders of Fantasia and also one of the chief world builders behind Flow, uh, he and I had a lot of discussions about like, okay, like what's going on in this world, figuring out different things about what what this game really wants to be. And uh, yeah, we kind of went from there. And then of course, like when you bring a guy like Andrew Bosley onto a project, like he's going to just infuse all of these world building details into his artwork and things. And so it's been fun for me to have a back and forth. Andrew and I are almost having a conversation in an indirect way, making this game because 
I'll have certain concepts that I, I design and then we'll say, hey, okay, so we need a batch of, say, um, restaurants in, in Flow. They're, they're famous for their, their noodles, which I can mention in a sec. But what I wanted to get to is just that Andrew will pass back artwork that then makes me reevaluate some of the, the details of my design decisions because I want to tweak things to like amp mm-hmm. up what Andrew did. And so yeah. it's like, it's, it's almost this back and forth conversation, but uh, one world building detail that I'll mention about flow, just speaking to the, the noodle bars there is that one of the main staple food sources is this fire kelp plant that grows underneath the, the water in these like underwater forests. It's this red kelp and people harvest it and they boil the kelp in water. And when they do it, the red spice all leaves the kelp and infuses with the water to make a rich and spicy broth. And then the kelp plant itself dissolves into glassy strands and becomes noodles. And so we kind of riff on the whole like ramen bar, just kind of like noodle shop um, soup uh, vibe where part of this game of what you do and part of the rhythm in, in this game is to leave the warmth of town and go out on adventures across the iceberg sea. You might be sailing around. You might be going deep underground into caves and finding crystals. You might be making maps or interacting with fairies who can enchant your items. And there's all manner of things to discover across the ice, but you generally get colder as you do so. And then eventually you can return to town and warm back up. And one of the best ways to warm back up is to visit one of the noodle bars and have a big bowl of uh, nourishing noodles. And so uh, the food culture and the the warmth of the noodles is a big part of the the game of flow. How descriptive or I guess defined is the, the world building in this game? Because what you're describing is phenomenal and really interesting. And of course... Points of mechanical and thematic connection are some of the the best things uh, that uh, you know you can have on a table. Like those are the moments where things sing, where you're like, "Oh, I'm doing a thing," and I can imagine exactly what the story is telling. Even in the most abstract game, when you can understand what it's trying to represent, um, that that thematic resonance is really potent. But is this more like ambient storytelling? Is there going to be a card that explains that the noodle bars sell this fire kelp and the fire kelp is, you know, harvested from this forest that's under the water? Or is that just something that you, the designer, the artist, uh, Andrew Bosley, you guys know and that's woven into the game um, and is just more ambient that, you know, is, is a detail that informs how you project the world? without necessarily describing it outright. Flow is more about playing than reading, say. Right. I mean, it's not a narrative game where we're going to be giving you blocks of text uh, right. to, to read through specific stories where we'll tell you beat by beat like what's going on. It's more like we want you to get lost in Andrew's artwork, totally. in the gameplay. I mean, just in the gameplay, you will be uh, sailing out harvesting kelp yourself, Mm -hmm. bringing it back to town, turning in your kelp at a restaurant where then a a dish will get prepared for you and you'll get to make a selection there at the restaurant. And then your capacity to be warm, which is like an equivalent of our kind of health system in the game, if you can imagine like a classic adventure game, uh, expanding your max HP or your max hearts or whatever it is. When you visit these restaurants, you increase your capacity for warmth. And so we are always trying to tell the story through the through the gameplay mm-hmm. and just have it all baked in to be discovered for those who are curious. The reason I ask about it, uh, and I think what you're doing is really thoughtful and um, and it makes it more intriguing personally to me, because I, I think back to, uh, I want to say it was George R. R. Martin who I heard interviewed once and he was talking about how a good tool that a writer can use, uh, and I don't think he invented this uh, tool, even if it was uh, George R. R. Martin that I heard, uh, but is to give every character that you create some sort of secret, you know, oh. like, and that's something that you as the author know, not necessarily because you want secrets for people to find out. They could never be addressed whatsoever. But if you take the time that even on a minor character, you give them some secret that they have, then that informs 
their behavior and it gives it a lot more depth and personality as you're building around that that person suddenly has a motivation they they don't want the secret found out well why don't they want the secret found out uh which informs the tone of their conversation or how they might interact with other people and that's essentially what you're doing here you have uh, a, a narrative or or at least uh, aspects of the world building in mind, but you're using abstractions um, that the, the players are going to be uh, playing with and not having every single granular detail uh, figured out. But nonetheless, that is going to give more substance to your world that you've thought about. Why does this happen this way? Why would people choose to do this? Uh, and I think that that is what provides a lot more of that thematic resonance in otherwise somewhat abstract Euro games. That's a really cool idea about giving all character secrets. Yeah, I'll have to think about that and process that and maybe just think back through uh, some of George's work and uh, (laughs) think about what everybody's secret is. But um, yeah, I mean, ultimately we are trying to make a super fun game that you can jump into, have an open-ended hero's journey across a fantastic iceberg sea arctic fantasy landscape and we're giving you a whole cast of different colorful characters and a lot of cool things to interact with in the world and at the end of the day if you just want to play like a fun adventure mm-hmm. game right like you can just do that and just enjoy yourself with flow but at the same time for people who want to look deeper into it want to think about the deeper meaning of what's going on maybe our just wanting to understand what is the the resonance between the theme and the mechanics at various moments throughout the game. It's like we want to make sure that, yeah, it's all uh, thought through. Yeah, we, we just are trying to be thoughtful at all stages of the design and reward people who do care about those things and want to look deeper into it. You seem like such a chill guy. Like every time that I've met you, even in the chaos of a convention, you have just had your cool. And... I gotta ask, like, let's take Flow, for example, or if you want to address with a, a, an already published game, what's the most frustrated you've been with one of your designs where you have some sort of obstacle that you just can't overcome that ultimately sounds like you did because you've had successful games and now you have other games that are getting published, but like, for any creative endeavor, sometimes you just run into roadblocks where you get you know, how am I going to overcome this? Or, you know, have you questioning, are you even going to be able to pull this off in the first place? Yeah, that's, well, thank you for saying that, the kind words. Uh, I, you know, the most frustrating moments for me as a working game designer are often the things that are outside of my control. Okay. You know, yeah. like if if uh, if one of my games gets gets dropped by a publisher or something and they, they release the... Does that happen often? Not often, but it has happened. I mean, it's it's something that can be expected. I think if you, you know, are, are putting a bunch of games in different people's hands and mm-hmm. and uh, trying to have a, a long career in the business, I think you can expect that, you know, sometimes uh, things don't work out and it's not even always your fault. It's like sometimes, you know, we have a global pandemic and, the, totally, and a totally. shipping crisis at the same time and all of a yeah. sudden what, you know... They what a publisher might have hoped for for their future, all of a sudden plans change and, and that can affect you. So uh, that's when I, you know, can get a little frustrated. But let me try to think um, in terms of the creative process, you know, I don't get too frustrated with things, but I think part of it is because I have a lot of different projects and, and outlets uh, mm-hmm. to shift between. And so I think if I was only working on one thing and I had to just kind of beat my head against a wall on a problem I was up against, then I would experience more frustration. But for me, it's like I have maybe a half dozen game design projects rolling. And then I have other things that I enjoy doing too. I like to, I like to write, I like to play music, uh, play with synthesizers and write lyrics and do audio production stuff. So uh, I have a lot of things that I can do to release my tension. And then also, as I was saying earlier, I love to, I love to walk. And I think for me, it's like sometimes if I'm feeling stumped on something at my home studio where I make my games, uh, sometimes just stepping out and wandering around Philadelphia and just getting some fresh air and having a, having an extended think walk, uh, can get me unstuck from wherever I was before. And so I, I, I try to avoid feeling frustrated and, 
try to be, um, also try to be gentle with myself, you know, and not be too hard on myself. If I can't come up with something right now, like it's, it's okay. Uh, I think, you know, it's better to be uh, more relaxed as a, as a creative and not, not beat yourself up about everything. So I try to, yeah, be a bit gentle with myself in that way and not get too worked up. Well, thank God one of us is doing it. <laughs> because over here throughout my entire creative life, whether it's podcasting, music, illustrations, you know, whatever it is that I'm trying to do, man, run into a, some roadblock, even if I can deviate, even if I can go on a walk in the gorgeous Alaskan landscapes, it's just like, oh, man, I, yeah, you know, why am I, you know, come on, I got to overcome this problem. I need to absorb some of your Zen energy. Yeah, you could uh, try picking up a meditation practice. There, you know? there we go. There we go. Um, so I love the inside baseball aspect of board games. I mean, obviously, that's why I started interviewing people who are mm. doing this. So were you at the con doing pitches? No, no, I was not pitching at this particular con, partially because I have enough projects right now. Um, yeah, I'm trying to finish all the things that are currently on my desk and mm -hmm. clear up space for, for new things. So a lot of what I was doing at this particular convention was just reconnecting with people that I've met in the past, like yourself, Jack, and meeting new people as well, making connections with publishers that you know, I might be able to work with in the future and just putting a, a face to a name is really useful in this industry. It's not mm -hmm. a big industry and, um, you know, people, everyone kind of gets to know each other. So it's useful to show up at these conventions, just say hi and, and yeah, be, be cool, be nice with people and just get, get the contacts going. And, um, you know, sometimes you plant seeds now and then later on they, right. they can grow into something and you don't need to, uh, always have an expectation that they will, but you know, if, I think it's it's still worth it for me to just make those connections. So yeah, I'm kind of intentionally not picking up more more projects right now. Um, but as soon as some of these games start coming out, like I've just wrapped up the Kickstarter for Cosmoctopus recently, so that was a passion project for me during the pandemic, and now that's kind of off my off my desk, so to speak, as the game design is is finished on that game. So that's one thing. And, and as more things start resolving, I think then I will resolving. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Start to begin to, to pitch again and take new projects. And you're thoughtful as a, as a creative individual. I mean, you mentioned earlier your music, writing lyrics, you, you're an artist. And so you think about your output and you have some very diverse designs right now. But when you think about a musician, I'll take it back to music, you know, traffic may have many different songs and many different styles but they still have one core sound uh that uh or or an aesthetic or or an oeuvre that is representative of them what do you think is your aesthetic or oeuvre like the the core thing where if someone was playing a game and they didn't see the designer on the box they might go this might be a Henry Audubon game. Yeah, that's interesting because um, I think that there have been some common threads throughout running throughout my early work, mm -hmm. uh, especially from from Space Park to Kingswood to Parks um, and even to Trails. Um, there's a lot of family resemblance between those projects in different ways of like, I tried to go for kind of a modular map with very clean action selection that's having, that's happening over top of that map. And then some, some resourcey kind of management with some light engine building, uh, funneling into some, some contract fulfillment and some race for points and various in different mixtures. Um, so I'm at the at a point now though where I want to expand and right. branch out and, and I'm feeling like there's a lot more that I have to say so to speak through mm -hmm. my designs and so there's a I'm, I'm you're kind of catching me at a moment where I'm trying to to break free of all of whatever design patterns were my comfort zone before and, and kind of get into like what what else can I do what else can I come up with and and kind of make a new new chapter for myself that is separate from my my early work even though i'm incredibly proud of that early work and i still will likely work in in those styles again i just want to you know as a as a creative guy i want to try to make new stuff and 
push my own personal boundaries of what I can do and what I'm comfortable with. What do you do for research? Like bringing it again back to music. Um, I, I had this conversation, it wasn't on the mic, uh, but I had this conversation with someone else the other day uh, and they were talking about um, something similar to what you were just mentioning, you know, wanting to broaden uh, their output. And I was thinking back to my own time of writing a lot of music and there's like a wheelhouse of like, I am comfortable writing songs this way and these types of songs, but I'm influenced by so many different types of music mm. and that, that may inspire what's in my wheelhouse, but to write something that is in a completely different style, oftentimes I'll find it so challenging that I have to really disciplined uh, or in a disciplined fashion, sit down and really study that work. And that's even to pull off something, you know, uh, passable. Like if I wanted to write like a really good jazz song or something that would take years upon years of research, I could write a halfway decent jazz song mm. if I spend a lot and a lot and a lot of time really getting into that uh, mentality because that's outside of my zone. So what do you do for the board game equivalent if there's a, a type of genre or a type of game that you love playing but is so far out of the scope of anything that you've designed up until this point? Do you go, well, that's a different type of game than I make? Or do you actually research, put in the hours, play a ton of games? You know, well, what's that process? I, I wouldn't say that I'm the type of person who plays a ton of games. I, I, I tend to have a more limited like play repertoire, so to speak. Uh, okay. And I tend to find games that I really love and then kind of go deep on those games. Like as a kid, I, I played a lot of a lot of role-playing games, a lot of Magic the Gathering, things that were just kind of endless right. universes that you could... That, Hobbies into themselves. Yeah, exactly. Like a whole lifetime could go into just like swimming around in the Magic cards and just seeing all the combinations. And so uh, that's a little bit more my style. And so like I'll give you an example of a game that I... I love, which is Dune Imperium. Mm -hmm. yeah. And actually at PAX Unplugged, I got to pick up the Immortality expansion, there which I'm go. excited about. Get your Oxalotl tanks going. Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. So to take Dune as an example, I'm not trying to make like a deck building worker placement game, mm -hmm. you know, or something. But I, in playing Dune, I'm reminded of just the high bar of like where games can go, how ga how good games can be. Um, I'm reminded of just the playful spirit within myself of, I'm just, I get excited playing Dune. I, I love it. I, I, I think that the ideas are great. The way that everything's fitting together is so, so pleasing to me. And so for me, it's, uh, I'm still learning from Dune Imperium, playing it over and over again. I've been watching, uh, some YouTubers who are into the Dune competitive scene and they're organizing tournaments and, uh, people like, I'll shout out Hidden Assets and mm -hmm. Orski, mm -hmm. who are two YouTubers who are making tier lists and, yep. you know, guides of talking about really interesting things that um, help me as a game designer, honestly, because they'll discuss a topic like, say, the importance of uh, turn order. And they'll discuss, like, why actually certain leaders benefit from being in certain positions in the turn order. Like, if you're in the third position, you might have an advantage because by the time the eighth round comes around when the really high stakes combat start coming out, you'll be the last player in the turn <laughs> order and then you'll be the last into the conflict, which is an advantage. And thinking along those ways, like I don't know that I would have uh, come up with that idea on my own of, wow, a third player advantage. Mm -hmm. It's like we have a lot of like, oh, balancing for player order and the first player advantage. But um, through these people who have done deep dives on Dune and through my own just interest in the, in the depths of Dune Imperium, I've been able to learn learn a variety of, of lessons just about game design and and um, anyway, so that, that's one example. So I I love to learn about games and I tend to be more of a deep diver on these things rather than playing every single thing. But at a convention like PAX, I mean, it's a great opportunity to get ex exposed to new stuff. And I did play some some weird little games. My friend uh, Corey Thompson, who does the Dice Tower News yeah. podcast, he um, introduced me to 
a game called Texas Showdown that was like a little trick-taking game that he had to acquire from Germany. And it's only in German, small print run. And it just, you know, they slapped on this Texas theme onto these cards of like, oh, cowboy boots and pistols and stuff. But it was such a great little trick-taker. And and that got me thinking a lot about like, wow, maybe I want to try like making some lighter card games and almost returning to what uh, the design project for parks originally was of like, maybe there's a really cool uh, card game that I could, I could make. So I'm open to learning from everything, but in just terms of my, my habits and my appetites as a gamer, I tend to like find things that I truly love and, and explore them as deeply as I can. Those small games, sometimes less is more. Like, do you find that bigger projects are come easier to you? Like for example, the parallel between parks and trails, was one of those particularly easy versus the other? Or I don't think either of them would have been easy, but easier. Um, well, parks was a longer journey to mm-hmm. design than right. trails. And so uh, in that, there, there's more going on in parks. And so in that way, maybe it is a little bit uh, more, more difficult of a design for me than trails. Part of, uh, well, an interesting bit of background about trails was that that game was designed in roughly two and a half months wow! where we were working under some pretty tight deadlines because we wanted to get things onto the shelf at target and, and target they're great partners, but they're very specific about like when things need to be ready, you know, for the, for whatever season the game is launching. And so, uh, what I had for constraints as a designer was like, Hey, we need a game that fits in this box. That's $20 that uses this artwork and it needs to be ready rather soon, you know? Yeah. And, the, you know, there's pros and cons to having those kind of constraints. I love a project like Cosmoctopus that it was very open-ended. It was a passion project. I just let my creativity rip and just take me wherever it, it took me, you know? But for a project like Trails, it's a little bit more constrained. And that can be helpful because it gives you some anchor points as a designer. Like, I knew that I couldn't have a giant board, for example. It's like, we needs to fit in this box. So, um. Yeah, Trails had its own set of unique challenges, but at the same time, that pressure cooker of not only the the physical constraints of the product, but the time constraints made it so that that was, uh, honestly, looking back on it, it was like a blissful period of just creative focus where I almost tunnel visioned and just pushed everything else off and was like, okay, Trails, I'm just every day, I'm like living in Trails mode. And um, yeah, I'm really acorns. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm really happy with how that turned out. There's been a a long trajectory getting to where you are, maybe not as long as some other designers, but, you know, game development, game production, getting a game to a table and in reality, meat space, not just a conceptual think space is a collaborative process. There's so many people involved. And as a nascent designer, Maybe you had uh, uh, different levels of authority uh, that you had with publishers where you could really say, this needs to be in the game. Whereas now you are an established person, you're an established name. Do you feel like you have more authority or confidence or, you know, like whatever it is to assert more creative control over a project? I'm reluctant to say I have more authority now or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that people, you know, trust me if they, if they've brought me on to do a project, it's like they do put their, their trust in me and, and I appreciate that they are trusting me and, um, you know, I, I let my opinions be known, but I don't try to, you know, throw my weight around or anything. Yeah, like, of course, you know, you you seem like someone who relishes in the collaborative process. I do. In fact, maybe more so now than ever, because I think when you're just getting started and making your first games, like they are so precious to you. It's unclear whether there will be more games and you, this is going to be your game that's on the shelf and you're excited about it. And when you know, somebody else is coming on and trying to meddle with your creation. It's like you get nervous about that and you're like, ah, you know, I I want it to be the way that I imagined it. But then once you've been through the the process of making games a few times and, you know, you can see the the benefits of collaborating with other people. I mean, the Keymaster Games team have just been incredible partners to me and they've elevated my work and made me a better designer, made me just a more, a more thoughtful person 
in a broad sense. I mean, they, they've been great. And, and so uh, it's, it, it goes both ways is really what I'm trying to say is like, I think I'm more trusted and I'm also more trusting of other people if I've done my due diligence and linked up with the, with the right kind of people. Because I think that's really, you know, that, that can undermine your, your design journey. I, I would just say if you, if you link up with the wrong people and mm-hmm. if you're not aligned in your goals and what you're trying to do, then problems can come down the down the road and sometimes people are too eager just to they want to get their game signed if they're a young designer you know people will say like i just want to have my name on a box and see it on the shelf and i want to take a selfie next to it or whatever it is but really if you're trying to have a career in this business it's like much better to be selective and try to really pick the the right partners and maybe like not be over eager just to sign your game with it with anybody if if your approach is going to be similar to mine which like i'm trying to make a curated line of games that are high high quality i'm trying to like keep a certain bar certain standard and so i'm trying to work with publishers who are also like uh viewing their games that way where each one is important and we're trying to to nurture them get them as good as they can be and then once they're out there in the world ideally we want to be reprinting them and supporting them and making expansions and and so different publishers have different different company cultures, different approaches, different strategies for how they position their products. And it's just like important to align your to to pair yourself up with people who align with your goals as well. And if you do that, then there can be the the mutual trust of like if you're working with great people, they trust you, you trust them, and the collaboration can can flourish. Well, I think that's great advice for any nascent designers out there or even established designers out there, aspiring individuals who are wanting to, um, you know, put more of their creative output into this space. So I am so thankful that you have come onto the show, that I've gotten to hang out with you. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to checking out the games on the horizon. Are there any other projects that people need to pay attention to or any other things that uh, you have in the works that we haven't covered? Yeah, well, please... Um Follow Cosmoctopus. That's going to be coming out mid next year uh, through Paper Fort Games. Uh, Lucky Duck is going to be doing the global retail distribution. So I'm hoping it'll just nice. be, be everywhere and uh, you won't be able to escape it. But uh, anyway, stay tuned for that. I'm super proud of that game. I think it's really fun. Uh, Flow, I'm hoping is going to be huge. Look out for that on crowdfunding. Uh, Q1 of next year, hopefully, maybe March, but we'll. Hopefully we can we can get it out there as soon as possible. And then I've got some projects in the works with other publishers too. As, as we mentioned earlier, Defenders of the Wild coming from Out of Order Games. Uh, that'll also be crowdfunding in the first half of next year. And also take a look for what I'm doing with 25th Century Games. I've got a couple of projects with them. One that I'll mention briefly is a game called Iron Horse that is a cooperative train heist western that uh, I'm super excited about. It's it's a it's a dice chucker, but um, really a fun just kind of co-op game about a gang of outlaws uh, striking back against a train. Each each outlaw for their own reason, but trying to grab the gold and get it out in a in a classic western heist movie climax scene. I I think your debut appearance on the cardboard herald. We covered a little bit of that at um, Pax Unplugged 2019. Maybe. I remember that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, and we were all so excited about that game. So I'm glad that that is still on the horizon because I want to get that to the table. Thanks so much for coming on to the show, Henry. This was an absolute pleasure. I'm glad that we were able to do this in long format. Yeah, me too, Jack. Thanks for having me.